0: Right, You should have an outline there in your bulletin. This is the sixth message in this little mini-series in Romans chapter uh, 14 that we've been going through, and uh, we've been calling it Unity in Diversity, and next week we'll start a new little series in Romans 15 called The Power of Oneness, speaking of the body of Christ. You know, one thing God has always been um, deeply concerned about is the unity of his people. Speaking of the church in general. Um, when he saved us, he gave us that real spiritual unity that we possess in Christ. It doesn't matter what our background is. doesn't matter what, what religion we were saved out of. Doesn't matter how old we were, how young we are, we are called to oneness in Christ. And he's really looked at that oneness through the eyes of our, um, the commonality of sharing eternal life through Christ. And when we think of the church, most people today, when they mention the word church, they don't think of oneness, they don't think of unity. They think of church bickering and fighting and all these kind of things. And we're blessed in, in this congregation, not to brag, but I will brag, that we haven't had a lot of that um, over the past 20 years. And I think you did all that before I got here, <laughs> which I thank God for. <laughs> but, you know, we've had some here and there, but for the most part, it's, we've been really blessed as a church to not have a split or a division. Now, we've had people leave here and there over minor issues, but that any church has that. Um, David proclaimed in Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to what? Dwell together in unity. All right, And he's speaking specifically about, even in Jeremiah, the, the, the nation of Israel, but we can apply it to us by application as the body of Christ. It says, they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of the children after them. See, the unity of the church affects not just us who are in it now, but those who just walk downstairs to be taught the word of God, these young children. In Ezekiel chapter 37, in one of his visions the Lord instructed the prophet, he says, Son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions. And then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them for yourself one to another into one stick that they may become one in your hand. And they will be one in my hand. And speaking of the whole world, Jew and Gentile alike, uh, God says in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, He says, I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call on my name, on the name of the Lord, and serve him shoulder to shoulder. What that means is side by side as brothers and sisters in Christ. And also in Zephaniah fourteen nine, he says, the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. There's coming a day, brothers and sisters, when our unity won't have to be worked on any longer. Now, we're one in Christ spiritually. It doesn't matter whether you go to this church or if you know Christ and you go to a different church. It doesn't matter what church you go to. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've trusted him as in his work on Calvary for the forgiveness of your sins, and you've committed your life to live for him from now until he takes you home, then you are one of his children, and you're part of that universal church that we have that that commonality. John chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus said this, and he was speaking to a largely Jewish audience. He said, I have other sheep, speaking of the Gentiles, I remember he's speaking to Jews, which are not of this fold, Israel. I must bring them also and they shall hear my voice and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. See, that's the uniqueness of the church that we belong to. It doesn't matter what country you're in. It doesn't matter what state you're in. It doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, what your religious background is. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are part of this bigger picture called the church. And God's eternal plan is for all who believe in him will become outwardly what they are already inwardly. See, we need to start living up to that calling that Christ has called us to, that unified picture of the body of christ and rather than bickering back and forth over silly things and that's what romans is talking about in romans 14 don't bicker over sabbath days and what you're going to eat or what you're not going to eat that doesn't promote unity that doesn't edify the body of christ rather focus on things eternal and so god's eternal plan is for us to become outwardly what we are already inwardly we call that the process of what sanctification See, when you get saved, when you come to Christ, when you commit your life to Christ, you're not all that you're going to be right then. You are in God's eyes because God transcends time. There's no tomorrow. There's no yesterday with God. He sees you just complete in Christ. But practically, as we live down here on this earth in this sinful body and even in this sinful world, we are have to deal with sin each and every day. And that process of sanctification is kind of like washing us up each and every day. It's kind of like we're, we're, we're taking a, a new shower every day in the grace of God because we need to. You don't ever arrive this side of glory here in the Christian life. You're never going to get to the point where you're not going to have to deal with sin. You're not going to have to deal with doubts. You're not going to struggle with tribulation and trials. That's not going to happen down here on earth. So if that's what you're looking for when you come to Christ, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Because what did Jesus promise us? Just the opposite. He didn't say, hey, come follow me, everybody. We're just going to have a big party. He didn't say that. He said, if you follow me, if you choose to follow me, you're going to have to, first of all, what? Deny yourself. And then you're going to have to take up your cross. What's your cross? It's not the thing you wear around your neck. In that culture, it was an instrument of death. It meant you're going to have to die to yourself. You're going to have to die to your own desires each and every day if you choose to follow Christ. And those of us who are Christians know what a struggle that is. That doesn't come naturally. I don't wake up every morning going, gee, I'm just going to live for Jesus today. This is going to be so fun. No, I get up and I say, you know what? I have this planned. Ah, I wonder what God wants me to do. And sometimes I say, well, you know what? Let me pray about it. And sometimes I say, yeah, I don't really care. I already got this planned and I'm going to go ahead and do it. We all do that. And on occasion. And so Jesus is very clear that this process of sanctification is going to go on in our lives. He wants us to become outwardly what we already are inwardly. And part of that is knowing what you are inwardly, knowing what your spiritual state is before God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28, he says this, when all things are subjected to him, in other words, when they're subjected to Christ, then the Son of Man will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. See, ultimately, everyone who belongs to the Lord will be be united in a glorious fellowship with him and with each other. John wrote about this in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. John said this, he said, "By, by divine... Uh, intervention he received this message from god and here's what he wrote he said i saw a new heaven and a new earth guess what the earth we're gonna we're on right now is not gonna exist so don't worry about it you know I heard John MacArthur preach a sermon one time he goes he was talking about the whole green message that's out there you know worshiping the earth and worshiping the trees and he said at the end of the at the end of the little sermon he gave he said so what's my message? Go shoot a deer and walk on the grass. And I thought, wow, how politically incorrect is that? You know? But you know what? Our, our society has turned everything upside down. It's more important to save a tree than it is a human life. The baby. The unborn baby in the mother's womb. And so when you stop and think about it, here's what Paul said, or John said, I, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Why? Because this one's going to be gone. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there is no longer any sea, and I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among men, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall... No longer be any death, amen. There shall be no longer any mourning, not the sun coming up, (laughs) crying, or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. So that's what we have to look forward to. And even though now, despite all these limitations, we're stuck in this body and we got all this stuff going on sinful flesh and sinful world all around us, we're called to be unified one to another. And so with that, look at Romans chapter 14, and I just want to read, beginning in, we we finished up 14 last week, but I want to make a couple comments on the aspect of, of building up and tearing down, what this means to build up the body of Christ or tear it down. And in Romans chapter 14, verse 19, we'll read down through chapter 15, verse 2. I'm in Corinthians, we need to go to Romans, okay, Romans 14 chapter or verse 19 Romans 14:19 So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding or edification or building up do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God everything is indeed clean but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats it is good not to eat it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on him for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats already, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is what? Sin. We who are strong have the obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. You know, sometimes when you're raising children, you have to repeat yourself. Those of you who have children understand what I mean. You don't just say, hey, you know, uh, don't do that, you know, please, and the child just magically obeys the first time. Usually you have to repeat it over and over and over. My daughter writes things on the refrigerator. You know, what, what attitude she expects from her children. You should have a thankful heart. You should have a graceful heart. And she goes through these list of things. And it's right there. Every time they go to the refrigerator, they see this list of things that they're called to live up to in their family. And it's ingrained in them. It's beaten into them by repetition. And sometimes we don't like repetition. You know, when somebody tells me something the second, third, fourth time, I'm kind of like, yeah, okay, stop. I hear you. Especially when it's my wife. Just be honest, right? I mean, you know, we we don't like to be told things over and over and over again. We just don't. But because we're not doing what we've been asked to do, sometimes we need to hear it again. All right? And so that's the way it is with children. And that's the exact same way it is with us as children of God. And so, some of this is going to be repetitive, even as we go through chapter 15. Paul is repeating the same theme, the oneness theme, the unity theme, the body of Christ, how important that is. And sometimes we get impatient when we hear things over and over again. But Paul here is talking about our tendencies to judge other Christians. And we've been going through that. And if it's your first time here, download the app or go on the website, the podcast, and listen to the messages, the previous five messages. And we'll put everything we say today in context. But he, he tells us not to do that. Don't fight with each other. We're to encourage, as strong people, we're to encourage those who are among us who are weak spiritually. And those words occur here in the text. In verses 17 and 19, you see peace. You see verses 15 and 20. You see destroy. You see clean and unclean in verses 14 and 20. You see stumble in verses 13 and 20. You see fall. The word fall in verses 4 and verse 21. You see the word condemned in verse 3 and verse 23. And you see weak and strong in verse 1. And also in chapter 1 and verse 15. Now, if God says it one time, you think that he's pretty important and we should pay attention to it. If he repeats himself... Guess what? We should really pay attention to it. Because God is speaking here. He's speaking to the church. He wants us to focus our minds, to help us to understand what he desires from us as the body of Christ. So what is the building up of the church? It says here that we should edify or build up the body. Build up each other. The word here is a, a picture of a building, part of a building, you might say. Um, and it has to be carefully constructed. You can't just get a plot of land and start throwing lumber there and just start hammering nails. What do, you, what, do you, what do you need to build up? And that's what we want to look at today. That word edification, it occurs there in verse 19. Let us therefore make every effort to lead to peace and upbuilding or mutual edification. Uh, Build him up. Well, how do we do that? Uh, That word edification is really an idea that's stuck in Paul's mind. It's throughout his his Pauline writings. Um, It occurs 15 out of the 18 times where this word, it's translated edification in his writings. But it probably goes back even further than that. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce points out in his commentary that the roots of this probably go back to Jesus' words to Peter at the time of Peter's great confession when he had faith in Jesus as the Son of God. You remember in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15, um, they gave the popular answers. Well, who do you think I am? Well, I think you're John. They, they, they're saying that they think they're, you're John the Baptist, Jesus, or some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And what was his his comment to them? But who do you say that I am? He personalized it. Doesn't matter what other people say. You're not going to give an answer for your spouse or for your children or for your neighbor when you stand before Christ. You're going to give an answer for you. When you stand before God, he's going to say, Who is my son to you? It's not going to matter about anybody else. And that's what he asked his disciples. Who do you say I am? And remember the text there in in Matthew 16, Peter answered, he says, you are the what? The Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon. And he's probably feeling pretty good about himself, right? Son of Jonah. But guess what? (laughs) This was not revealed to you by man. In other words, you didn't come up with this on your own, Peter. Don't get all high and mighty on us. But my Father in heaven, and I will tell you that you are Peter. And I remember from my Catholic faith growing up, this verse, really, after I got saved, I thought, well, what do I do about this verse? And once I came to understand what Jesus was saying, it made perfect sense. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The Catholic faith teaches that Peter is, what, the first pope. There's no no evidence of that in Scripture whatsoever. They use this verse saying that somehow Jesus was building his church on someone as flawed as the apostle Peter. Just stop and think about that. I mean, what kind of foundation would that be? I mean, that would be a shaky foundation at best. Even Peter himself, In in Bible college, we had a a, a prof, and he referred to Peter as Pendulumic Peter. Because you never know where Peter's going. One time he's over here, I'll die for you. The next time he's denying Christ. He just goes back and forth, vast sway and emotion. And Jesus was speaking of the corporate body of believers here. And Paul uses, he employs the words to refer to the building up of individual Christians, helping individuals grow Spiritually, I'm going to come back and explain what Jesus meant when he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. But the idea that he was interested in building his church, not in numbers, but in individuals. Um, the word in the Greek texts are exactly the same, but Paul also uses the word edify here. Uh, in Ephesians chapter two, verse nineteen to twenty-two, he, it reads this way. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is, building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you. Two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Do you hear that those verses just drip of unity? They drip of oneness in the body of Christ. And these the Paul likens the the church to a kingdom. He likens the church uh, in some passages to a family. He likens it here to a temple. And when you stop and you think of of building a a temple, he thinks of a building into which individuals are being built together. You know, we're not just members of our own church. We're members of the greater church of Christ. And so we need to take care how we do this building. And that's what I want to practically look at today. God is in the process of building his church as Jesus said, He is, and if Christians have a, a share in doing part of that work, which we do, that's what we're called to do, we ought to ask ourselves, well, how are we supposed to do this? You know, it's one thing to tell you how to do it, it's another thing, or it's one thing to tell you what to do, go do this, but it's another thing to not only tell you what to do, but to tell you how to do it. And that's very practical, and that's what Paul does here. So when we talk about building up the church, First of all, I want to look at the first point. To build something properly, you need to know what you're trying to build. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? You need to know what you're trying to build. You don't just go down to Home Depot and say, yeah, I need some lumber. I'll take some nails. I'll take some screws. Uh, what else do I need? He ask the guy, and the guy says, well, what are you building? Well, I don't know. I just thought I'd build something. I mean, he's not going to know what to help you. Do you need hinges? Do you need latches? Do you need bolts, nuts? He has no idea because you have no plan on what to build. So the first thing here is to build something you need to know what you are trying to build. You need a design. You need what? A blueprint. Okay, right now we're working with an individual to put together kind of a master plan for the property here at Grace Bible Church. And we gave him a a pretty incredible task. He's a landscape engineer from, I think he lives in San Francisco. Came very well um, recommended. And uh, we walked around the campus one day. And he said, well, what's the the major thing? I said, okay, we want to get people from this parking lot down here up to these doors without any steps. And he started scratching his head. Wow. That's a pretty big undertaking. I said, I just want to know if it can be done. You know, it just makes practical sense. So he's putting together these plans. He goes, this is, this is kind of fun. Because it's a challenge. It's going to be a challenge. And so in coming months, we're going to be sharing eventually what, what, kind of, what these things look like. But it's important to have a design. To have a blueprint. You can't just say, okay, we're just going to start doing stuff. You have to have a plan. And in Romans 14, don't forget all the way back in verse 19, he uses that that word edification. He speaks of the project as the work of God. He said, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Now that isn't a complete blueprint, but it gets us started that at least we're working on something. We're working on the church, God's church. And what matters is what god is doing in the lives of individual christians in that church so whether those people conform to our ideas of what a a, a a pious or a useful christian should be i mean or not it's 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 kind of we want to work on unity and in paul's day that was important because in the in the early church you had jews and gentile coming together and that was like oil and water they just didn't mix And so they they came up with all these regulations. They had rules about eating and about drinking and about keeping certain holy days. And we've gone through all that. And so what Paul is saying here is the kingdom of God is not about that, brothers and sisters. We shouldn't focus on the minors here. In verse 17, he says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you turn over to Ephesians chapter 4, we even can add to this initial blueprint that God gives us here in Romans. If you turn to Ephesians 4 verse 11, Paul refers to God's plan like this. He says, for God gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers and to prepare God's people for the work of service. See, some, sometimes people in the church have it wrong. They think somehow that, you know, well, that's what pastors are for. That's what elders are for, to, to serve us. No, that's not why we're here. We're here to equip you so you can serve the body of Christ. So don't ever forget that. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity In the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The whole measure of the fullness of Christ is what we should strive to see in other Christians. We want to live up to our calling in Christ. That's the blueprint. That's what we're called to do. To the extent that we're to follow God's blueprint rather than our own little vision of what's going on in our little life, we should look across the horizon and say, what is, what is God doing in the church? I mean, that's one reason why we are supportive of missionaries in foreign lands. That's why we're interested in trying to, to recultivate that, the idea that, you know what, we're going to be bringing on more individuals who are missionaries already in their homeland. So they don't have to learn a language, and they're part of the indigenous people. And they can pastor a church right there with their own people, and we can support them in doing that. That's a very important principle that we want to uh, see where our missions goes forward. And, and why is that? Because that's part of, of this whole idea that we want to become more like Christ. We want to equip others to serve for his sake. See, we don't just have a Wednesday night Bible study, just have a Wednesday night Bible study. I mean, we all got better things to do. We really do. But why do we have a Wednesday night Bible study? To equip the body of Christ. Why do we have a service Sunday morning? It's not to entertain you. It's not so you can come and sit through, you know, try to sit through a service and then go get something to eat, you know, and fellowship with some people. That's not the purpose. It's to equip you. It's to give you the word of God in a way that hopefully you can apply it to your life and you can walk out of here saying, okay, I understand more about God than when I first came in. I understand more about what I'm called to do as a Christian than when I first got here. Why? Because we're trying to follow that blueprint that God has laid down. Well, secondly, you not only need a blueprint, but you also need the right foundation. If you've ever built anything, you understand this. It's very common sense. It it makes perfect sense. If you're going to put up a good building, you need a solid foundation. The very end of the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, Jesus used this image to distinguish, you remember, between those who would build well by hearing his words and putting them into practice and those who would not. Turn over to Matthew chapter uh, 7. Matthew chapter 7, and look at verse 24, and Jesus uses this illustration. It's just so practical. It was even practical back then. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, he says, everyone who then hears the wor- these words of mine and does them will be like this. So he says, let me give you a word picture. In case you missed it, I want to give you a word picture. They'll be like this, a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But what? It did not fall. It did not fall. You want your Christian life built on a, a solid foundation. You want to stop the stumbling and stumbling around in the dark and trying to figure out what God wants you to do. Build your Christian life on a solid foundation. Build your Christian life on his word. Take time to understand His word, and it says in verse twenty-six, um, "It did not fall because it was founded; had been founded on the rock." And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, when you hear the word of God and you say, no, I can't do that," they're like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Now, if you've ever been to the beach, you know what it's like to build a sandcastle. And you also probably know what it's like when the waves tide comes up and it washes your little sandcastle away. <coughs> that happens all the time. Sometimes it can be frustrating because you don't know the tide is coming up. And so you spend time with the grandkids, you're building this castle, and you're "Oh, God, this is really cool. And all of a sudden, no, oh, no, man, here it comes. There's nothing you're going to do to stop that. We've tried, you know, tried to build, push, build a sand barrier around it, you know. Eventually it gives way. Eventually, what does that sandcastle do? It just becomes part of the rest of the sand. It's nothing, nothing. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, you know what? If you don't build your life upon the word of God, you're going to be like a sandcastle that just disappears back into the sand from which it came. It says, and the rain fell, verse 27, and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And guess what? It fell. And great was the fall of it. And you say, "Well, why was the fall of it great? Because they didn't anticipate it falling." See, there's a lot of people today that are building their lives. They're building. They're trying to build churches on on a foundation other than God and His Word. They're building it on trying to be hip with the culture. They're building it on, you know, the latest music. They're building it on this. They're building it on that. All those things are not something of which we want to build a church on, definitely not our own lives on. We want to build it upon the word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul says this to the Corinthians. Now remember, the Corinthians were a troubled people. They were a church, but they struggled. I mean, they had all kinds of problems going on. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, and this is a message that they needed to hear because their church was so messed up. Paul said this. He said, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid. What is that? Which is, what's he say? Jesus Christ. So we don't need to come up with new fangled ways how to grow the church or how to do this or how he's already got it done. We just need to be faithful in what God has called us to do. And Jesus meant precisely the same thing when he told Peter in in Peter chapter 16, back to that verse, verse 18, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Do you see where the Catholic interpretation of that verse that it's talking about Peter collides with other scripture? We just read in Matthew that, hey, there shouldn't be other, other foundation. We read in Corinthians, there's no other foundation that can be laid other than Jesus Christ. So the whole concept that the Catholic Church is built on the papacy of of peter on this verse that's a lie it's a lie and because of the way he said this some people have supposed that he was trying to say that somehow he was building his church on peter but he was really making a play on peter's name okay to highlight the contrast between this weak little disciple peter And the foundation that he was. As a matter of fact, if you go to the original language, in Greek, Peter's name is Petros. It's a masculine form of the noun meaning, not rock, stone. Better yet, pebble. What do you do with a pebble? You kick it out of your way. You you, you know, you don't mess around with pebbles. You know, you don't say, oh man, there's a pebble in the road. What are we going to do? No. You know, down in Honduras, when we were down there, they said sometimes they have these huge rock slides. And sometimes they occur at night. So they, they don't even drive at night. And plus they don't drive at night because they would get robbed. But they're, they're really afraid of the mudslides that just cover the whole highway. They kill people, take people out. But when we were down there, we saw rocks and little pebbles and nobody mentioned them. They're insignificant. And that's what Peter was. He was this little pebble, this little stone. But when Jesus spoke of the rock on which he would build his church, he used, listen, a feminine form of the same word, Petra. Petra, which means living rock, or better yet, bedrock. Something that's solid. Peter was this little pebble that could easily be kicked out of the way and dislodged. And you know what? He understood that. Not too far from this period of time, right? Because he thought, oh, I'll never deny you. I'll never... No, you're, you're just a little pebble, Peter. Don't think of yourself so highly. And he ended up denying Christ three times. But Jesus is this solid, living... We sing the hymn, Rock of Ages, right? Clap for me. Uh, you know, that's such a good picture of what our foundation is. This is how Peter himself understood Jesus' words. Because he wrote of Jesus as the living stone in his first epistle. Drawing on three other Old Testament texts to make his point. And as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, the word says, you are like living stones and are being built into a spiritual house. Peter says this, to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And for in Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 48, he says, I see, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. Leon Patillo wrote a song called Cornerstone, and it's this verse, put the music. And the one who trusts in him, it says, will never be put to shame. You're never going to just fold back into the sand from which you came. It's never going to happen. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, those who haven't trusted Christ, those who haven't yielded their life to the Savior, it says the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. You want to have an interesting, you want to stir up the the beehive at your place of employment, start mentioning the name Jesus. Boldly. You'll see what happens. Trust me. It's not something that's highly thought of in our society today. Why? Because they've rejected him as a savior. So therefore, that name is a stumbling block to them. They just can't see it until God opens their eyes. See, uh, there's too many people today who are trying to build useful solid lives, but they're doing it in a way that God hasn't prescribed. They're trying to be the faithful husband, the the provider, and, you know, the good guy at work, and we're trying all these things. But they need to know the only foundation upon which you can build any kind of stable life or career is the foundation of Jesus Christ. That's it. Are you building on that foundation? A foundation that will enable you to stand... Solidly against the storms of life, and we all got storms in our lives, don't we? Are you building on that foundation, or are you building on the sand? Thirdly, not only a design and a good foundation, but also you need good supplies. Sometimes you see housing tracks going up. You know they're building these houses, and and uh, you know you look at some of the material they're using. Like I wouldn't want to live in those houses. Why? Because they're using second-rate stuff. You know? Uh, I remember talking to John Worthington one time about, you know, uh, roofing. And he says, yeah, some guys in the industry, they'll just cut corners wherever they can because they're trying to make a buck. His company doesn't do that, by the way. So if you ever need a good roof, go to John. He's a wonderful company. But why? Because they use good supplies. Yeah, it may cost a little more, but you know what? It's going to last a lot longer. And it's the same principle here. The third necessity, if you're going to construct a worthwhile building, is enough raw material. And it has to be good quality. Nobody likes stuff that's just kind of thrown together. You know. Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, verses 28 to 30, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. He gives another illustration. You think he was an architect, the way he spoke of these different (laughs) illustrations. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it. By the way, he is an architect, just in case you're wondering. He created everything around us. Look at your body. Talk about a genius. He created it from nothing. Nothing. He says, for he lays the foundation, and he is not able to finish it if you don't sit down and have a plan and estimate the cost, everyone who sees him will what? Ridicule him. Saying this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. I remember down here on on one of the side streets here, going home, there was an individual who started building second story on his house. He didn't go through the correct permit process. So halfway through, three quarters of the way through, the city came out and shut him down. So he's got this weird looking house and like, there's some ladder on the roof. It's still there from the construction. He just, like, gave up, you know, because he wasn't doing it right. And I'm sure he's a, lot, a subject to a lot of ridicule in the neighborhood. How are you going to build up another Christian or even your own life for that matter? How do you do that? Well, you do it by teaching the truths of God's word. You take the word of God and you apply it to their lives. The word of God will never run short. The word of God will never be considered to be inadequate. That's why Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we all know these verses. For as for you, Timothy, he's telling this young pastor, he says, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of. Because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy, listen to that parents, from infancy... You have known the holy scriptures, for which you are able, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says this all scripture, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Why? Why, Paul? So that the man of God, or the woman of God, for that matter, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You want to see good works in your lives? Study the word of God. Take time to systematically go through the word of God. If you don't know where to start, start in the gospel of John. I always tell people, find a good preacher, MacArthur, Lawson, somebody that's gone through the book of John and sit down with them every day and say, you know what? I'm going to have an appointment with this guy on this MP3 on my computer until I get through the whole book. You know, don't, don't play games. Don't, what does this verse mean? I was wondering what this verse means. Oh, what's this verse mean? You're not going to learn anything that way. It takes hard work. It takes systematic study. It takes time. You're not going to just know it. That's what in Acts chapter 20, verse 32, Paul is taking, is, is taking leave of the, the, the Ephesian elders. And he knows that he's not going to see them again. He's, he's moving on. And he says, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. Why does he do that? He tells us in verse 32 of Acts 20, he says, which can build you up, there's that word again, and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul wanted to tell them something. He wasn't going to be there anymore to teach them. It's like if if I thought somehow, you know, tomorrow my life was going to be over, what would I tell you? I would tell you to study the word of God. Study. Study for yourself. Don't rely on somebody else. Study it for yourself. Paul would never have instructed these dear friends again. This was it. But he knew that he could trust God to continue the work of sanctification through their lives. Why? Because they were in the book. They were studying the word of God. Well, the last thing here, uh, in, in, uh, the fourth thing, is you need to construct your building bit by bit. You know, I always like to watch those, I don't even know if it's on, you know, more that show where they go and they uh, rebuild somebody's house. What's what was the name of that show? Huh? Anyway, I don't know. They, you know, they would find some poor family that had this yeah. beat up house and they'd go in and, you know, they'd have three days. And I'm thinking, I, I wouldn't want that. You know, because they're just, you know, they're not, the paint's not even drying and the sheetrock's not even drying. They're throwing paint on the walls. It's kind of crazy, you know. And I'm sure it's a blessing for the people that, that receive it. But you wonder sometimes how long those works last because they're just thrown together literally overnight. And I know they use the best materials and the, probably the, the finest craftsmen. But still, when you're building something of value, when you're building something that you want to last, you're not going to just snap your fingers and it's going to be done. It's going to take time. No worthwhile building is constructed overnight. And that's related to our own Christian life as well. You know, you don't just get saved and then you're, you know, you're the apostle Paul. It doesn't work that way. It takes time. Time for what? We got to draw up some plans. You got to lay down the foundation. You got to choose the materials. And, you know, all those things take time. Uh, Sometimes when when people are doing a remodel or reconstruction of a house, you know, they're all excited at first. And then you talk to them, you know, a year and a half later, and they're going, I just wish it would end. I just wish it would be over. You know, I'm tired of going to stores and looking at lamps and walls and colored wallpaper and paint. I just want it to be over. I just want a house again. See, why? Because it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. And the same thing with our Christian life. In Isaiah chapter 28, verses 9 to 10, Isaiah talks here about the, the work of, of building character in our children. He says in verse 9 and 10 of, of Isaiah 28, he says, Who is it he is trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk? To those just taken from the breast? For it is do and do and do and do. Rule on rule, a little here, a little there. What's he saying? Your kids aren't going to learn everything just like that. You can't raise your kids overnight. It takes 18 years, pretty much. And then even some. You know, it never stops, it seems. It just, you know, just keeps on going on and on. We've got to continue to build them up. It takes time. It takes hard work over time. It means adding a little teaching here, a little teaching there, continuing to persuade them to become more like Christ. In terms of church ministry, it requires strong, consistent teaching week by week by week. I mean, I don't know how else to bring you to the point of building you up other than giving you the word of God. I mean, I could probably very easily get up here and just giving some anecdotes and kind of share some funny stories. And we'd all hoop and holler and go home. And you'd say, well, that was a great service. But maybe you didn't learn anything. See, I want us to come together and learn. I want to grow with you. And and, and see, part of that is getting into the word of God, understanding what it means, how we apply it to our lives. Well, the opposite of building is what? Tearing down. See, there's a negative side to all this, too. We've been positive up to now. We want to edify, edify, build up. But it's also possible to tear down the church. In fact, that's probably the case in most churches. They're tearing the body of Christ apart, not building it up. Um, And in Romans chapter 14, verse 20, that's why he says, Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Don't do it over something silly like that. In verse 2 of Romans 15, he says, Each of us should please his neighbor for his good. Why? To build him up. See, one way we tear down the body is by fighting over things that are not important. Another way we tear down the body is by insisting on our own rights, our own pleasures. Rather than thinking about somebody else for a change, Donald Gray Barnhouse, great pastor teacher, shares a story of a missionary who visited him, and uh, he was very well known in the mission field, and he was talking about various problems they have on the mission field, particularly things that cause division. And Barnhouse just casually said, "Hey, why don't you write some of those things down? I'd be curious." Well, this missionary took it to heart, and he spent the next two, three hours writing things down in detail. And I just want to share a snippet of it with you this morning. He spent several hours producing this documented list, and some of them are going to be on the screen there, but he says, they're in your outline, an unforgiving spirit, things that tear down the body of Christ, self-seeking, a legalistic spirit, playing God for others, hypocrisy, uh, failing to appreciate others' gifts failing to make allowances for one another, lack of patience, not sympathizing with others' infirmities or perhaps their lack of gifts that we possess, evil speaking, assuming without grounds that others are at fault, pulling one one another into pieces, tearing one another into pieces, suspecting the motives of another, a domineering spirit, a rebellious spirit, snobbery, hatred, grumbling, arguing, murmuring, maliciousness, being a busybody, greediness, bitterness, resentment, a sense of inferiority, in other words, not resting in the Lord, not satisfied with the gifts that he has given you, but always wanting something else, lack of security, instability, timidity, spite, laziness, economic sponging, lying and slander, Malice, jealousy, thinking too highly of oneself, a critical spirit toward others, carrying on controversy, being ill-informed about the position of another. All those attitudes, all those actions, beloved, tear down what Christ gave his life for, the church. They tear down rather than build up. But because the missionary was a wise man, he also put together a positive list. And he says, I'm not going to give you the negative. I'm going to give you the positive. I'm going to give you a list of things that help, that build up the church. And here's what he came up with. A willingness to be in subjection to one to another. Considering others better than yourself. An understanding spirit. A sense of intimate relationship to Christ. Not insisting on our rights. Willingness to confess a wrong spirit. Sincerity. A generous spirit. A sympathetic spirit, trusting others, having faith in Christ, not necessarily in others, but expressed as trust to others, knowing that we belong to him. Joyfulness, prayer, discretion, a critical spirit towards oneself, a gentle and quiet spirit, humility, using our gifts for one another, remembering our own mistakes, Christ-centeredness, love and word and deed, fair dealing, integrity, Recognizing one's place, a forgiving spirit, doing all things decently and in order. Conscientiousness, faithfulness, being responsible to perform the tasks assigned to us, not misusing our authority over others, being willing to to follow those who have authority over us. Exhaustive list. That's a lot to do or not to do, depending on how you look at it. Well, is it all worth it? Is it worth it? What's the, what's the use of going through all the problem here? See, the problem is not that we doubt the ultimate value of the work that God has given to us. But we tend to get bogged down in the hard daily task of taking these stones and fashioning them together, fitting them together. In the overall structure of the church into something that would bring honor and glory to Him. We're so focused on the stones, we, we lose sight of the bigger picture. We lose sight of the blueprint. We get away from what God has called us to do. See, this helps us to remember what God is building is a temple of us, living stones. In 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7, we're given an illustration here when they're building the great temple of Solomon. And verse 7 says this, Only blocks dressed at the quarry were used. Listen to this. No hammer, no chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. While it was being built. Uh, when you stop and think about the implications of that, it's construction was so well done, it was almost silent. All the noise was done in the quarry. They took time to precisely craft each stone. So when they brought it to put it in place at the temple, they didn't have to adjust anything. It took time. It took hard work. And that's the way it is with the church. Sometimes you don't hear what's going on inside the human hearts as the Holy Spirit creates new life and adds new individuals to the temple that he's building. He's building. Remember, we're all coming from different backgrounds, with different burdens, with different baggage, and we're called to be one in Christ. We don't even fully realize the part that we're playing in the process of God building his church sometimes. We're called to build up other people by focusing on important matters, laying petty arguments, petty differences aside, and teaching the word of God to each one faithfully. But God continues to work. And guess what? His temple continues to rise. God was adding Gentiles to his church back in this time. And Paul was the chief instrument whereby that came. A Jew, a Pharisee. God used him to bring Gentiles to the church. God added high, low, the scripture says, slaves, freemen, Greeks, Romans, barbarians. He continued to add people at the time of the Reformation. He continued to add people at the time of the Great Awakening in our own company, with all the our own country, with all the revivals that went on. And you know what? I want to tell you, he's continuing to build his church even today. And guess what? We are the participants. We are his workmen. We labor together with Jesus Christ. And we have a responsibility to do the work well and follow the plan that he has laid down for us. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that we would be excited about the work of God you have right here at Grace Bible Church. Lord, we don't know necessarily what the future holds. Father, we just, we just choose to be faithful to your word We pray, first of all, as individuals, that we would be faithful to your word in our individual lives. Lord, that whether we're at home with our families, whether we're at work, whether we're out in recreation and play, that our first call would be to follow Christ, to live for Christ, to do things that honor Christ. You don't get a break. You don't get time off. That's not part of the Christian life. It's 24-7 until we go to glory. And we know that that's, that's an overwhelming task. But that's why you gave us your Holy Spirit. That's why you gave us your word to encourage us and to build us up and to help us to encourage each other. And Father, we, we pray that also as a church that we would stay faithful to your word. We don't take this for granted. Lord, we, we thank you for this place that we can come and hear the word of God taught. And we can have a, a mutual Um, edification and a building up of the body of Christ and we can see how you're working in our lives and through us starting from the very young to the very old and Lord we we can't forget the impact that you desire our church to have here on this peninsula in this dark corridor where less than 3% of the people go to any church Lord you've, you've placed us here for a purpose and it's not just to grow fat in our spirituality each Sunday but it's to go out and share the word of God with those around us to share the life changing message of the gospel both here in Redwood City and across the globe and so Father I pray that you would motivate us to first of all be prayerful about our involvement in this work that you called us to and then secondly just our own commitment to you Lord if there's any one here this morning who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ. I pray, Lord, that only, as only you can, Lord, that you would call them to be your own, that you would allow them to hear your voice crying out to them. And, Lord, that they would cry out to you in turn and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I know that I have sinned in my life, and I know that Christ died to forgive that sin. I pray that I would commit my life to him this morning. That's a prayer that God will honor when it's prayed from a sincere heart. So, Father, we ask that you would bless our time of fellowship across the way as well. Bless the food of our bodies. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.